Mott Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'm pleased to have Vic Larcher from the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health with me for this podcast. We're going to discuss the recently published supplement, Making Decisions to Limit Treatment in Life-Limiting and Life-Threatening Conditions in Children, a Framework for Practice. This is an important document for the readership for organisations and for people to think about, reflect on and implement in their practice. It gives a framework to help deal with this difficult issue of children with complex medical problems in whom there has to be decisions about what best treatment options to pursue. Vic, what's the background to this and why do you think we need a document of this type? The background has been really present over the last 20 odd years in the sense that clinicians uh, confronted with making difficult decisions in children who were seriously ill and towards the end of their lives were concerned about a what they should do and b what the law permitted them to do. So there was a need for if you like a reinforcement of the framework in which they could operate. And they didn't want something which was terribly proscriptive, but at the same time they didn't want something that was so loose that it would be valueless. So the idea was, in framing this document, was to set out the parameters in which decisions could be made. Increasingly, modern technology increases what we can do for children and we can get survival of children who would previously have died uh, or who previously would have had very stormy courses uh, but now they can recover. I mean I think the Epicure study indicates on premature babies indicates some of that. Survival figures for children with uh, various forms of cancer have radically changed during my lifetime in practice. So we can do more. The question remains however is should we do more? And should we do everything to the utmost degree and continue to try to strive to save life until the end, until it is clear to everyone that what we are doing is futile and what we are doing is actually causing suffering to children? So it's really a document to tell the reader who's faced with these sometimes very difficult decisions to make in children with complicated medical problems, the sort of issues they should consider, the legal framework and how they might best deal with them. Can I ask you to talk a bit about the three categories? Because I was very interested in the three different groupings you talk about, which is when life is limited in quantity, when life is limited in quality, and informed, competent refusal of treatment. So they seem to be very helpful for the reader to think in those terms. Yes, what we tried to do in this edition was to categorise things a little better than they had been in previous conditions and try and set it in both a qualitative and quantitative framework. These I would emphasize from the outset that these are not conditions in which one must 
withdraw, limit or withhold treatment, but they are conditions in which one might discuss it. So let's talk about quantity first. If a child is clearly in such a state where physiologically treatment can only can really have no effect if they are if they are already far advanced in the dying process then clearly to offer invasive and treatment with burdens uh, is inappropriate time uh, as a category if you like when life is also limiting quantity because death is inevitable inevitable within minutes inevitable within hours and then you have the more difficult group where death is inevitable within maybe longer days or maybe weeks but in which there are still questions over quantity of life and the the other group in that are those in which there is a diagnosis of brainstem death. And you might argue, why on earth do we have a category of brainstem death in here? Well, the answer is that m some people, as we know from cases in the United States, do not accept brainstem death. So that's category one, the, the life limited in quantity. Life limited in quality is far more difficult because it is the uh, subject of value judgment. It must be so. For example, when treatment has burdens, more when treatment has net burdens uh, over benefits, who decides that and how should burdens be apportioned and when do they become intolerable? The second uh, element of that is when the disease itself becomes more burdensome and disease itself such as advanced epidermis bullosa, advanced cancer confers more burdens than benefits and treatment is merely prolonging the process of dying if you will. And the third category is again a difficult one at least for some people and that is when a child who is able to make decisions for example a child who has got a long-standing uh, condition such as cystic fibrosis such as heart disease which for which they've suffered over the years they've had multiple treatments and they actually say well we do not want to continue treatment if they are competent to make that decision and if they are supported by their parents we believe that their voice should be uh, strongly heard and indeed there have been cases that their, their voice has been listened to. They're complicated concepts and you emphasize there's no right answer so how should the clinician try and think through these issues? Is there strategies you think that um, organizations and trusts should have in place to try and help the clinician who's trying to work through even these concepts, never mind the practicalities of the individual child. Firstly, the college has an important educational function in making sure that doctors in training do have appropriate training in facing these end of life and these difficult decisions. And increasingly, I think medical education does recognize that. Secondly, I think trusts need to have structures in place to support people who make uh, difficult decisions. That may be in the form of chaplaincy, it may be in the form of advocacy, it may be in the form uh, of a clinical ethics committee to which such cases can be brought and can be listened. They don't make the decisions themselves, any of these agencies. That decision is still left to the clinician and it is still their decision to be made. But at the same time, they often need help and support in going through it. 
have you, for example, involved everyone in the case that you feel that ought to, to be involved and who can contribute a valid viewpoint? So I'm aware that you've been a chair of a clinical ethics committee previously. So how did that operate? Was the clinician allowed to refer any case? We were one of the leaders in the UK in developing a clinical ethics service. And what you're doing by developing a clinical ethics service is trying to provide help in making these uh, kind of decisions. You may do that by having a committee that to which cases may be brought, and anyone can bring cases to the committee. Or you may have a group of people uh, who've got appropriate training expertise and competences who can be called on to talk with clinicians and with parents, often what one might call a rapid response group, small group, usually up to about five, six people maybe, uh, who will sit and listen to all the sides of the arguments or the, where, look at the points of disagreement, look at the clinical and value facts and try and focus people's minds on some kind of structure of making decisions. You may want to consider the clinical interests. You may want to consider quality of life. You may want to consider the parents' religious and their social background. And you want to consider what is in the best interests of the child. So these are the, the kind of things that you use to make sure when you're discussing cases that you haven't actually forgotten something. Do you think there are scenarios in the 21st century when, as you've already said, we can do so much that we have to think about protecting the child's best interests? Yes. You, you can use, say, ECMO, extra membranous corporeal oxygenation, to keep maintain children's circulation. You can use a Berlin heart which is a cardiac assist device. In the early days of the development of these devices, they were inevitably, they were invasive procedures, they were burdensome. But as technology expands, so the, the devices become smaller and the burden on the child decreases. But there will always be new treatments at cutting edge for example, some of the more experimental treatments for leukaemia and oncology, in which there are difficulties of that nature. Difficult to get, give precise answers because it will depend, to some extent, in the institution in which you're practising. There's lots of practical considerations highlighted in the, the document, including the process of decision-making. Are there any particular things that you'd want to highlight the clinician. Clearly we'd want the clinician to look at the document and look at the framework, yeah. but are there things that you think that the clinician should be thinking about, be reassured about, and feel maybe more confident about as a consequence? I think that one of the areas, of course, is uncertainty. And you can never take away uncertainty from how... If we... One of the things that clinicians will be worried about is if we withdraw or withhold treatment in this child, suppose that we haven't got it right. Suppose that the child isn't, uh, hasn't got the condition that we think that the child has. Suppose there is a condition that we have missed. Should we still be considering withholding withdrawing? One of the things that we say in the document is the greater the gravity of the decision that you have to make, the more certain you need to be about outcomes. So one degree is about certainty. Two is whether you are going to go for unanimity 
in the decision-making process within the team, you may never achieve unanimity. And if you go for unanimity, that, that may be... So you mean you'd never necessarily achieve agreement? You never necessarily achieve agreement within the whole team. It's important that those people in the team who are party to the decision do have an opportunity of having their voice heard and any disagreements or misgivings that they've got, they are able to put those across without fear of sanction or it affecting their career progression or their place within the team. So there's a legal framework if difficulties arise, isn't there? And, I mean, how do the courts sort this out if it's difficult and clinicians and parents disagree? We do read about this in the media regularly. I mean, how do the courts address that? What's the legal framework? Well, the court will apply statute if it is appropriate to do so. So if there is a decision which involves, say, the unequal treatment or perceived unequal treatment of children with disabilities, they will take account the framework of the Equality Act of 2010. But by and large, most of the decisions are based on a determination of best interest. Now, various legal commentators have argued that the best interest criterion isn't the objective criterion it sets itself out to be. But nonetheless, it is one which is used in English law, uh, it's used in the Children Act, it's used in the Mental Capacity Act, and there are various things that you need to take into account in determining best interests. One includes the clinical outcomes, the balance of burdens over benefits, Two is the future options for the child. Three is the parental wishes and the wishes of those who are relevant others and so forth. And the child's religious, social, uh, psychological background. All these things are weighed by courts in making decisions. Uh, and they also use the UK Human Rights Act, or at least it's not a primary element in decision-making for courts, but they have to take that into account. You must accept that I'm not a lawyer and any legal pronouncements I make come with a, a wealth warning. One of the things I quite like about the document is it does at least talk about what happens after someone dies, because that can be quite stressful. Yes. And of course, if significant decisions have been made, and and often it is clinicians who are driving and hopefully making a decision be made, they can feel very traumatised by events. And how do you think that's best dealt with by organisations and the individual? I, I think increasingly we recognise the burdens that these kind of cases provide to clinicians. The dreadful burdens and the dreadful unhappiness that goes to parents, loved ones, carers of children in these circumstances. That is a given and we try to arrange bereavement services that can help. But those people who make these decisions on a regular basis also need our care and support and it may be useful to have an ethical debrief with those people who've been intimately involved in the case so that they can go through what they feel they should have done, how they should have done things differently and so forth. I have held regular debriefing sessions with staff of PICU at both Great Ormond Street and the Brompton Hospital and we've tried to make those sessions so that they are helpful to those involved in cases. 
because there is a risk, as you know, of burnout of PICU staff. And in this climate where people are feeling undervalued as clinicians, or maybe feeling undervalued as clinicians, and I, I'm not in the clinical practice anymore, but that where that is the case, there is a need to accept those things and try to make them better, or as best as we can. Thank you very much. This is a very powerful document and one that I would commend to readers nationally and internationally to read, think about, reflect on in their practice and highlight to their organisations because it gives a good framework and practical strategy for these complicated issues to be best dealt with. Thank you very much for coming to discuss the document. I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives. I hope very much you found this podcast interesting and I would certainly commend the document to you which is freely accessible on our journal website.